Welcome to the UN and Organized Crime podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Ian Tennant. This podcast episode will explore the background to and implications of what's known as ECOSOC consultative status for civil society at the UN, and especially what that status means for those working in the organized crime policy space, including ourselves at the Global Initiative. The Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime was created 10 years ago, and UN engagement has always been a priority for our organization, but it's also always been a challenging endeavor, as it is increasingly for civil society in general. Our organization's application for ECOSOC status was stuck for five years until it was finally granted in July 2023 through a vote of the ECOSOC, which stands for Economic and Social Council of the UN. Our story is not unique. There's countless NGOs who have faced similar challenges due to the politicized nature of the NGO committee of ECOSOC, which grants this consultative status. And what this status gives you is the automatic ability to attend and contribute to certain UN meetings. Without the status, it's very difficult. This episode will hear more about our journey and the plight of NGOs around the world who struggle to get their voices heard due to the increasing restrictions placed on civil society, both at the local level and unfortunately at the UN. To contribute to this episode, I caught up with the Global Initiative's Deputy Director, Tuesday Retano, who submitted the Global Initiative's ECOSOC status application many years ago. Tuesday, can you explain what the historic relationship is between the UN and the mission and mandate of the Global Initiative? Well, actually, I think the GI was born out of a conversation that the UN didn't want to have. So it came about at around 2011 that there was an initiative which was triggered through the through the UNODC to kick off a Secretary General's policy committee around a better UN response to transnational organized crime. And it was agreed that a Secretary General's policy committee would be convened, which would be co-chaired between UNODC and the UN Department for Political Affairs, DPA. There was a meeting in New York which brought round a series of UN agencies and departments who we felt at that time within UNODC had a mandate that was relevant to the issue of transnational organized crime. And it was fascinating then to watch these senior officials mosey into the room, really wondering why the hell they were there, absolutely convinced that the issue of organized crime had no relevance to their mandate whatsoever. And to watch the conversation unfold as they began to realize what actually we meant by organized crime, why it wasn't an issue that should just be siloed into Vienna, and how addressing the illicit economy, different forms of illicit markets and criminal actors was central to achieving a set of governance and development goals. Unfortunately, as is often the case within an environment that's highly politicized, the decision around the Secretary General's policy committee ended up focusing the mandate of that committee very narrowly on the preparations for the next special session on drugs within the UNGAS. And we were left feeling that actually there needed to be a broader conversation about what organized crime is. Why did it resonate with such a broad set of actors within the multilateral system, yet the multilateral system wasn't well-placed to pick up and continue that conversation, almost because it was too broad? So in the margins, and we had Peter Gastro, a good friend of Marx and a long-time 
thinker around issues of transnational organized crime. As a senior diplomat for the South African government, he was chairing the negotiations around what was then to become the UNTOC convention. We thought we would try and do something outside of the UN system. So a kind of shadow conversation that could feed into the deliberations of the policy committee. And under the umbrella of IPI, we convened a set of senior law enforcement officials, most of whom were their government's security liaison to the UN, a position quite common in New York, to talk about the questions of what is organized crime. And it was they who actually gave birth to what then became the GI. So they saw this issue of transnational organized crime as being something so far beyond a criminal justice issue, not a policing issue at all, which is fascinating because it's rare that a policeman would say, actually, crime isn't our business anymore, but recognized the whole political economy that had been established around the illicit economy and criminal behavior that needed a far wider set of actors to address. And so for us, it remains a multi-sectoral conversation, one that absolutely has to happen. And that because it is a transnational crime, it's also a multilateral conversation. And yet it is somehow one which the UN really struggles to engage with. So from what you've said, it would seem like a necessary and obvious decision to apply for ECOSOC status to, to engage with the UN. So When you applied for that status, I think, in 2018, did you expect it would take so long? Well, the precondition to applying for ECOSOC status is that an independent civil society organization has to have three years of financial history. So you have to have completed three financial years and had them audited. And that was a mandatory prerequisite for making the application. And having come out of the UN, both Mark and I, It was a sense that, okay, this was a priority. We needed access to the UN and its bodies, which ECOSOC grants, in order to be able to continue to discuss the issue, to put it on the table, to contribute our expertise and that of the network to the multilateral debates. So it was definitely considered a priority. And the mandate of the GI, you know, putting together the building blocks of a global strategy against transnational organized crime, we didn't see how that would be done without the UN system. For us, if there was going to be a global strategy, it had to be embedded within the UN. So it was one of the first things actually we looked into when the organization was legally registered, which was in January of 2013, so 10 years ago, that we would look at how to apply for ECOSOC status. And I remember... (laughs) Very, very well, the afternoon in the office, sitting there, the sun was shining through the window, which is very rare for Geneva in January. And I was going through page after page of the form, hit this obstacle that, oh, you need three audits. And realizing we wouldn't actually be able to put in an application until 2016. In actual fact, it came even later because audits were delayed. So um, when we when we made that application, I thought, okay, finally, We've reached the end of this three, four year quest to be eligible for ECOSOC status. So, of course, I already thought we'd come a really long way in order to be able just to apply. And it was a real sense of achievement when I clicked the button to say, "Okay, you know, our application is ready to go in because we had not only founded, but grown an organization over a period of years that we now felt was finally eligible. So certainly it was a huge disappointment when we were postponed for the first time. (laughs) And, you know, I just thought it was a given that it would come and that we would get it because we'd worked so hard to be there. And it never occurred to me, actually, that this politicization of the debate would extend all the way down to the NGO committee 
and that our little organization would be subject to so many blocks and barriers. You've spoken about the politicization of the process at the UN, but as we know, this is reflected in the the wider world as well. So over, over your 10 years at the Global Initiative, can you describe how the space for civil society working on these issues has evolved, both from what you've seen at a local level and at the international level? Definitely. I mean, certainly when the Global Initiative was founded, it was commonplace to see the challenge that human rights defenders and anti-corruption activists were facing, often against their own member states, but increasingly in the multilateral environment. And we were very familiar with certain NGOs being blocked from accessing certain UN debates or being challenged from entering or giving their opinion in public fora. And so we had not anticipated this being an issue that would be applied to the work that we did necessarily in the same way. Yes, we knew it was political, but broadly, there was a strong sense that transnational organized crime was a common enemy. You know, we felt that it was rare that governments would stand up and say, okay, you know, we have an issue with an organization that's revealing the underworld. And really, the degree to which the progression of the blurring between criminal interests, corporate interests and political interests has occurred over from when we were founded in 2013 to now in 2023, where that process arguably in some states is complete now, has come with a growing resistance to those who wish to call out the sort of troubling intersections between crime, corruption and the state and those who are seeking to reveal you know, cases of malfeasance to hold states to account for continuing to fight against the growth of illicit networks. And I feel like we are very much now in the crosshairs of those organizations, much as human rights defenders had been 10, 15, 20 years before us, for holding up on the side of the right, because that distinction has been so aggressively eroded. And now that we have this consultative status, this ECOSOC status, which was granted earlier this year. What do you think we have a responsibility to do with that status you know, on behalf of civil society more generally? So I think the GI has always positioned itself as an expert body, not an advocacy body. You know, we have typically stayed very much in the realm where it is our responsibility as an organization to provide evidence, to provide analysis and to help states who should still be the primary respondent to transnational organized crime to understand the policy implications of what it is we're revealing. And it was only three years ago that we launched our first advocacy campaign, which was our assassinations witness campaign, where we felt there was a common ill which needed advocating against, which is criminal hits, targeted assassinations, killing of civil society representatives. And shouldn't that be an issue on which relatively neutrally, again, the the globe could convene around as being a priority? So for us, I think we continue to feel now that we have ECOSOC status. Our job is to be in the room and provide expertise. It is to facilitate the access of experts to comment on key issues of policy in order to provide the relevance of their expertise. And I think, you know, Ian, you lead a lot of our work around cybercrime. And the Cybercrime Convention, I think that's a modelling of the role that the GI should be playing in the multilateral system. However, I would say now a second role that has become critically important is to try and reopen space for other civil society actors to 
speak their voice into the multilateral system. So, you know, we've noted here that it's getting harder and harder for NGOs and civil society to be part of those debates, partly just because of the complexities of gaining access, affording the travel to participate, to make their, even particularly small NGOs, the kinds that we work with through the Resilience Fund, to make their presence known to the international community. I think that's become an enormous part of our role. So there is a value, no question, to hearing what it's like, what the illicit economy feels like on the ground, what real people are experiencing, and to share to policymakers the solutions that they've found, the local solutions that they've found to mitigate the harms of the illicit economy in very real and tangible ways. So I think whereas geopolitics in general has become increasingly complicated and achieving political solutions is harder, the kinds of local solutions that we are seeing step more and more into the breach of a response at that time. So I think that for us is our second mandate as now a accredited organization in the UN system, that it is to open the same opportunities to others. And what advice would you give to those smaller or maybe newer NGOs who are just starting out on their journey and trying to influence policy on organized crime issues at the international level. As somebody who's taken the global initiative from that beginning that you mentioned, going through the process of growing, um, finding its feet, and then applying for status, finally achieving that status, what what advice would you give them? That there are more worthy fights (laughs) or that there are more productive things to do with their time. Um, I think that realistically, you know, we, our journey to get a, accreditation with ECOSOC and to be regularly and openly accepted as an expert body in the UN system was a long journey. I mean, it was eight years of negotiations against very fierce resistance. And I think we only came through in the end by the sheer tenacity and bravery of a certain number of member states who were prepared to stand up for us, despite a prolonged period of filibustering by a set of aligned actors who didn't want to see civil society's space grow in the UN system. I would question these days whether now the UN system itself is the primary forum for policy change. I think that civil society actors, whether you're looking for national change or international change, or to have impact, can have far greater impact at lower levels than higher ones. Geopolitics is extremely complicated right now. The world is not very receptive or tolerant or kind or giving. I don't think that the international norms of behavior, international human rights law, asylum law, even the fundamental principles of global governance are being well adhered to or defended in the UN system at this time. So I'm not sure this is where I would put my energy, which is ironic given the fact that we finally now got the status to do it. I think credibility can be earned at lower levels and that Achievements can still be had with national bodies, with local authorities, perhaps even with regional bodies on certain issues. But I would say the international environment is perhaps not necessarily the forum where it's worth fighting. That said, not to give up entirely, if there are opportunities, take them. You know, if the GI is in a position to facilitate a certain number of NGOs to speak in various fora, that's an opportunity that there's no reason to miss. But I wouldn't say it was necessarily the place where the greatest return on investment can be found. Tuesday, thank you very much. Extremely welcome.
The International Service for Human Rights is an international NGO which monitors the granting of ECOSOC status and advocates on behalf of NGOs who apply for membership, as well as tracking the work of the committee which grants the status. I caught up with Maitili Pai from the International Service for Human Rights. Maitili, in your opinion as an organisation that's watching this very closely, has it got harder in recent years for NGOs to receive ECOSOC status? And why do you think that is? So we've been monitoring and engaging with NGO committee for at least a couple of decades now. And our research shows that it has actually gotten harder. So in the early 2000s, so the governing framework that applies to the NGO committee is a resolution of the ECOSOC of 1996. And starting then to the early 2000s, when we were monitoring the percentage of NGOs that would get through the door with accreditation, it was roughly 50%, more or less in different sessions. But over the last two to three years, we've been seeing that this is down to actually a one-third approval rate. So almost 66% of NGOs that apply don't get accreditation. The reason, in our opinion, really just boils down to membership. So the way the process works is 19 members of the NGO committee decide which NGO should be granted status and which one should not. So the more friendly the composition of the committee, the higher the chances of NGO getting accreditation. At present, more than 50% of the member states that are part of this NGO committee have been shown to have repressed civil society space and what happens domestically also gets reflected at the UN. We keep urging member states that have better records of supporting civil society participation to actually be members of this body so that civil society can have entry into the UN system because ECOSOC status is really the first step. So you would say that this reduction in the percentage of NGOs that receive ECOSOC status is a a direct reflection of the composition of the committee and the increasing number of countries with a more oppressive outlook. Yeah, there's also some part of the number of NGOs that have increased in application itself. So in the early 2000s, we were looking at something around 2000 NGOs. Now, as I understand, I think there are over 6000 NGOs that are already in ECOSOC status. So there's there's also a growing interest in NGOs that want to be part of the UN. And there isn't a proportionate increase in the resources on the UN side. So the UN DESA, which supports the NGO committee, hasn't witnessed even a remotely proportionate increase to support the growing interest of NGOs that wish to participate within the UN. So that I think that could also be one of the reasons that is an explanation for these really disproportionate delays that can range from a few years to the most egregious case being a 15-year wait before an NGO was granted accreditation. Okay, and maybe not everybody is familiar with the process, but can you just briefly describe what tactics countries use to defer or block NGOs? Do they use substantive or more procedural tactics? So the way the process works is once the application is sent to the UN, 
the UN trans does has its internal processes and then it gets transmitted to the committee members for their consideration. And it works a bit like a veto in some sense in that if any member has a question on your application, your application is deferred automatically to the next session where you're expected to provide a response and you aren't granted status until the point where member states have no more questions left to ask. The the tactics that they employ though are that there are very limited to no safeguards or guidelines on the kind of questions that can be asked or even how many times the same question can be asked. So as I mentioned, there was an NGO that was deferred for 15 years. This was the International Dalit Solidarity Network. And they actually compiled all the questions that they received over that period of 15 years, which was over 100. And actually several of those questions were repeated. And there's nothing within the rules and processes of the NGO committee at present to stop that kind of arbitrary questioning where the NGO on its side has done everything it can, has provided a satisfactory answer, but member states can just continue to unfairly keep asking the same question, ask questions that have no connection with the NGO's ability to contribute to the UN and use that power to question as a tactic to indefinitely delay an NGO's accreditation. Okay, so if any country decides that there's an NGO they don't want in there, they can essentially string it out for a number of years or indefinitely. Yeah, absolutely, indefinitely. Okay, so despite the challenging picture that you've painted, why do you still think it's important? You know, why does your organization encourage NGOs, despite these challenges, to keep trying to engage with the UN system? Despite the challenge, we believe that NGOs have a very, very crucial role in the UN project, in shaping the norms of international governance, in holding states accountable to uphold their human rights obligations. And I'm focusing on human rights here because I work with a human rights NGO. And even though the process is unduly challenging and unfair, I think Making that voice count at the UN when accreditation is received is is really, really crucial. And we've been able to make a lot of progress on so many human rights issues at the UN because of the voice that civil society was able to bring in these processes. So there's it's more of it's also a bit of a compulsion and that this is the process that we have to go through to have a voice at the UN. But I hope that through this process, the light at the end of the tunnel is one that is still worth it, where the people on the ground, the we, the people of the UN Charter, are able to ensure that the outcomes coming out of the UN reflect the needs of civil society and leverage civil society's expertise on their own lived experiences and their expertise on technical issues to address the very serious challenges that we face as humanity today. And what advice or recommendations would you have for NGOs starting out on their journey of engaging or trying to engage with the UN? Before they get accreditation? So there are a lot of resources that exist on the process of application. The UN DESA has a guide for NGOs looking to get accreditation. The International Service for Human Rights has a handbook as well in at least the official UN languages. And we're hoping to translate this in many more languages to make it accessible to NGOs applying from various parts of the world. I think it's really important to get the process and ensure that 
the eligibility requirements are met. There are, for example, requirements around being legally registered and having been registered for at least two years. So ensuring that at least all those procedural requirements are take take marked and once you start engaging to ensure so sometimes the questions that are asked actually can be legitimate right there can be gaps in your application and i think it's it's important to ensure that from your side your application is up to date and provides all the answers that should be legitimately provided but then also knowing keeping an eye to the questions and being able to gauge at what point it's clear that this is arbitrary questioning or it's politically motivated and these are not legitimate questions anymore and once you do reach that point then there are different advocacy strategies that come into play based on the frameworks that exist at the moment so one way that exists currently at the UN is a member state at the NGO committee can call a vote on an NGO that they feel is being arbitrarily targeted. And that's one way to break this indefinite cycle of being delayed because of arbitrary and unfair questions being asked on your application. So also being aware of those processes, being able to engage with committee members, there does exist a possibility of coming to the UN in person during the NGO committee session and answering the questions that are being posed on your application. And we have been advocating for this process to be a hybrid process that doesn't require NGO representatives to travel every session to come to New York because it, it in our opinion, it goes against the tenets of participation and especially encouraging participation from the global south. So we really hope that this is something that would be changed and it would be in a hybrid format. But in the meantime, there does exist this possibility of also coming in person, answering the questions, but also engaging with friendly member states at the committee to point out to them the way in which you have been answering legitimately and why you think your your deferral is politically targeted. Okay, and you've, you've outlined some vital information there, and I think people will be reassured to know there are resources and NGOs out there like yours that are looking at these issues and can provide advice on advocacy strategies and so on. You mentioned the voting procedure that's been employed quite a few times now, and obviously our organization, the Global Initiative, benefited from this voting procedure at the NGO committee and subsequently at ECOSOC. But what do you think the long-term effects of these kind of procedures will be? Do you think it will unblock some of these delays that we're seeing, or could there be other unintended consequences? I think it definitely, at the moment, the the system that we are working with, it is the only outlet through which NGOs that are being blocked can be unblocked. Those are the limitations with which we are working within the current system. In terms of what it means for the future, I think we have to bear in mind that the calling of votes and the success of votes is always affected by the politics and composition of both the NGO committee, their membership, what is the kind of support that they have from their capital, and also the composition of ECOSOC and their ability to lobby ECOSOC members on the vote, right? So it's it's still one that I wouldn't say it's a regular process. There have been several years where no vote was called on any NGO, like gaps of really long years. And that is what 
that's what led to these NGOs being deferred for 15, 12, 10, 8 years. And then there was a point when votes started being called and some of that backlog was cleared. But just to say that this is not an institutionalized process in any way. It depends on the willingness of a state to call that vote at every time. So it's it's a bit, it's still a bit ad hoc, which is why we continue to focus on more of the systemic reforms. And also because it shouldn't, it shouldn't come down to this, right? It shouldn't come down to NGOs being blocked for several years and then votes being called. And something that we also faced more logistically is when there's a gap of many years, because a lot of delegates of the UN are on limited time missions at the UN in New York, and then are posted somewhere else or go back to capital. It's also about rebuilding the institutional memory and, you know, justifying that this practice has existed. Because like I said, it's not one that happens regularly unless a state decides to take this action. So it, it definitely represents hope for NGOs, but we would like to see reforms that are more institutionalized and less ad hoc. Okay, so you've spoken about the fact that there are countries out there willing to support civil society participation, and you've welcomed this ad hoc approach of the voting. But what are those, if you could kind of summarize your key asks in terms of those systemic forms that those countries who are in favor of civil society participation could fight for? So I think the states that are in favor of civil society, our view is that their support for civil society has to permeate across every engagement at the UN and not just be limited to the NGO committee. Because what we're looking at is changing the broader environment, the narrative around civil society's value at the UN. So this involves states that are in favor of civil society expressing their support for civil society engagement in all their discourse at the UN through their actions in the way that they actually stand up for civil society, the invitations that they exist, they extend to civil society delegates in negotiations and events. It has to be something where you're walking the talk consistently because often what happens is that the states that don't want civil society robust civil society participation at the UN are extremely vocal both in their words and in the actions that they take and it seems like there's a lot more coordination happening between those member states so we need the states that we know support civil society participation to have actions that are not only able to counterbalance that, but are stronger so that we're pushing against this tide of repressing civil society space, both domestically and internationally. And like I said, there are a range of actions from statements to actual membership of bodies that have decision-making power around civil society presence, like the NGO committee. Well, thank you very much. And that's definitely food for thought, at least in the organized crime aspects of the UN, where, where we're primarily engaged, including here where I am in Vienna, where there's certainly been a lot of pro and anti-civil society coordination over recent years. Maitili, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. In this episode, we've heard what it means to face restrictions at the UN level for civil society and what member states and NGOs can do to ensure that access remains as open as it can. You've been listening to the UN and Organized Crime podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Mm-hmm.